Thank you, Susan. Well, I bet that you all either have or have had or at least know somebody uh, that has Netflix. Uh, it seems like everybody watches movies and shows on Netflix. And I have to admit, I've had Netflix for quite a while. And one of my favorite things to watch on Netflix are the documentaries. It's always fun to see, you know, the life of a person or a person's family or the work that they do or what's going on in the world uh, just from the perspective of a documentary. Well, you know, uh, the most watched documentary of all time on Netflix was actually released in February of this year, February 2020, and it had 65, 64.7 million views in its first week, in the first week that it was out. And this uh, documentary is called The Tinder Swindler. Now, if you've never heard of it, trust me, that's a good thing. You don't want to have to go out and watch this. It is the true story of a man who met women on a dating app called Tinder. And he would meet these women and he would pose as the son of this extremely wealthy, rich diamond mogul. And then he would date these women, he would buy them uh, expensive gifts, he would take them to lavish dinners, he would even take them on rides, uh, on private jets, and he would get them to the place where they fell in love with him. And they didn't realize that the whole time, the expensive gifts and the lavish dinners and the you know, private jet rides were funded by the wallets of other women that he had conned. He had a pattern. Uh, he would get these women to fall in love with them, and at the right time, he would tell them that he was attacked by an enemy. You see, he was such an important person. His father was so wealthy and so important that they had enemies, and these enemies were always trying to get at him. And he was uh, saved by his bodyguard who helped him out. And there was a security problem, a security glitch that had taken place, and he couldn't access his money. So he would tell these women who he had, you know, just loaded with all of this material stuff and had loved him and thought that he loved them, that, you know, he had a temporary problem and they needed to uh, help him out financially. So they would begin to give him his money, her, their money, and they would give them their money until all of their bank accounts were depleted, and the problem wasn't solved yet, so he would have them max out credit cards and buy things for them on credit cards, all the credit cards they could get, and that wasn't quite enough, so they would go and take out personal loans. And when they took out as many personal loans as possible and there wasn't another dime to be produced, he vanished. He was gone. They never heard from him again. Now, you might think, of all the documentaries on Netflix, why was this one so well-received, so watched? Why did so many people want to tune into this one? And I think it's because uh, 
stories like this, accounts like this resonate with something within us. We know how cruel and how horrific it is to pretend to love somebody when really all you want is their money or their stuff. I mean, how would you feel if the person that you thought loved you didn't really love you, but they were just in it because of what you could give them? And then when the goods ran out, when the things stopped coming, they're gone. Well, as we begin our study of Job, we're going to spend the whole summer in the book of Job. We're going to see that we will begin by encountering a potentially similar question, a similar problem. Uh, the questions arise. Does Job really love God? Or is he just using God to get stuff? And how would we even know? So as we begin the study of Job, again, we're in the first two chapters this morning, we're going to be able to answer those questions and see whether Job really does love God or if he's using him to get at the stuff. So turn to Job 1, Job 1, 1. We're going to start by reading the first five verses together, and then we're going to make our way through all the verses in the first two chapters. So you're going to want to keep your Bibles open to the text of Job. Job 1, 1 begins, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we begin uh, with this man named Job. Now, scholars say that these events took place during what's called the patriarchal period. Uh, that's the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. And that's when these events took place. Now, uh, scholars aren't certain as to when this account was actually recorded and placed into the New Testament or the Old Testament canon. Uh, some believe that this book, the account of Job, was the very first book that was actually recorded, even before uh, Moses recorded Genesis. Uh, some believe that it was recorded during the period of the Exodus and maybe even recorded by Moses. And some believe that it was recorded during the time of Solomon, David's son, and his reign. And maybe even Solomon himself recorded this account. 
But we do know for certain that Job was a real person. The Bible tells us that he was a real person. He was a real man, and he was from the land of Uz. Uh, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 14, it lists three great heroes of the faith, Noah, Daniel, and Job. These were real people, Noah, Daniel, and Job. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, he records that Job was a real person. Uh, in James 5, 10, and 11, uh, James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So Job is one of those examples here, these examples of suffering. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we know that Job is a real life example for us. And that's why it's going to be so great to dive into this entire book throughout the summer. And he's an example to us uh, initially because God says four things about Job. He said, as we saw in the beginning there, that Job is blameless, he's upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. Four great things are said about Job. So our first point is that before we begin the book of Job, really, we need to realize that Job was a godly man. We need to get this to really understand the truths that God, the lessons that God will show us through this ancient and magnificent book. We need to realize Job was a godly man. And it's interesting because in the first two chapters, God repeats these characteristics, these attributes of Job three times. Three times in the first verse, in verse uh, chapter 1-8, and then in 2-3. God says that Job was blameless and upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. And as you're listening to me, you might think, that's so weird. How can someone be blameless? Uh, does that mean that he doesn't need Jesus, that he didn't need a Savior? No. Uh, we know that Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that includes me, it includes you, and it would include Job as well. So blameless doesn't mean sinless. But blameless means that they ordered and orchestrated and made the decisions of their life in a way that was consistent with the will of God. Uh, we see the same thing is true of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke 1, 5, and 6. Luke 1, 5, and 6 says there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So blameless means that although they were sinners in need of a savior, they were people who habitually followed the ways and the commands of God. The overall pattern of their life was one of consistent obedience, and the same was true of Job. 
But we know that Job recognized that he was a sinner because he made offerings for sin, we saw. He even made offerings for the sins of his own children. And it wasn't just external sins or sins on the outside, but the text read that Job was concerned with their hearts and thought, you know, maybe one of them has cursed God even in his or her heart. So the text says that he continually made offerings for those sins. It was a lifelong habit of his. Uh, the text also says that he was upright. Upright meaning he walked along the straight and narrow. He didn't veer to the right. He didn't veer to the left. He walked along the right path. And he feared God. He had a respect and an awe of God. He knew who God was, that God was his creator, and that he belonged to God, that God had authority over him. And when you really, really realize who God is, the natural response is what, God, what Job did. He turned away from evil. He feared God, and he turned away from evil. And I would just say, if you're struggling with some repeated sin right now, sometimes the best thing to do is to stop focusing on yourself and to focus on God instead. To really learn who God is, to study God and the attributes of God. And as you learn to fear God, it drives the evil away from you. So Job was not perfect, but Job was a godly man. And what's interesting is that all of heaven even recognize that. Let's look back at the text. Job 1, we're going to go through 6 through 11. Job 1, 6 through 11. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And you might think, what Bible is she reading from? Because mine says before the Lord. Well, whenever you see the Lord there in the Old Testament with a capital L and then a small cap on the O-R-D, uh, that is what the translators used to reveal that the original Hebrew text there said Yahweh. And that's the covenant name of God. And so when I see the L-O-R-D in caps, I'm just going to read that as Yahweh. So they came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, ha. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So we take this scene on earth and we shift it up to heaven. And we begin with the sons of God coming to present themselves before Yahweh. Now, uh, else, an, another place in Job, Job 38, 7, reveals that the sons of God are the angels. So we are in heaven here, and they are presenting themselves before Yahweh. 
Now, scholars say that if you present yourself, it's because you've been summoned, you've been called. God has called them to come in his court, so to speak. It's not like they have free reign and can come and go whenever they please, but God said, I need you here, and they presented themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh. And then uh, we see that along with the angels comes Satan. Now, the Hebrew there is ha-satan. That means the Satan. And in your note, it might even say the adversary or the accuser because that's what Satan means. Ha, the, Satan, the adversary or the accuser. The accuser came with them. And that's what Satan is. He is an accuser. He accuses God's people. Uh, if you look at Zechariah 3.1, it talks about Satan accusing Joshua, the high priest in the Old Testament. It says in Zechariah 3.1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. We see the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, when we look at the demise of Satan in Revelation 12.9 and 10, uh, Revelation 12, 9 and 10 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Satan was thrown down, the devil, the one who accuses God's people night and day. And so Satan accuses Job. Satan says, does Job fear God for no reason? What he's saying here is, you don't think he has a reason for fearing, for loving, for serving you? He loves you because of the stuff. He loves you because you give him so many things. Job loves you because of what you give him. Job is using you, God. Uh, that's what Satan's saying. I mean, look at him. Satan says he's got the perfect life. He has 7,000 sheep. The guy's got a whole clothing line, right, in the land of us. He also has 3,000 camels. That's more than Enterprise Rent-A-Car. He's got 3,000 camels. He has 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. That's enough to fund the Costco there. And he has many servants. Job was a great businessman with a great reputation. And then he has seven sons and three daughters. And those are numerically the numbers of perfection, seven and three. He's got the perfect family is what Satan is saying. And you know what? They all, they love each other. They hang out together continually. Remember verse four says, his sons used to hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, some scholars say seven sons, seven days of the week, 
each on his own day, each one of the sons had a day that they would hold the family dinner. And the whole family would come and eat together every night and fellowship and enjoy one another. And as verse 3 says of Job 1, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So Satan's saying to God, you take away the stuff and Job is going to walk. You'll never hear from him again. He was accusing Job of loving the stuff. And you know what? He was accusing God of bribing Job. Well, Job 1.12, it says, Job 1.12, and Yahweh said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went away, went out from the presence of Yahweh. God said to Satan, okay, you're going to see you're wrong. Let's look at Job 1, 13 through 19. It says, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. So they were in the house of the oldest brothers. Uh, some say that the seven days had come to a completion here. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow. Look at verse 16. While he was yet speaking. This is happening at the same time. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And... I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17. While he was yet speaking, at the same time, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18. While he was yet speaking. At the same time, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they're all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, it's interesting because we see this note on the oldest brother's house. Uh, some scholars, again, say this could have been the end of the week. And as we saw back in 1-4, it said, when the days of the feast had run their course, this could have been the very day that Job was there consecrating his kids, making offerings for his kids, getting right with God in the morning confessing sin, saying, God, I want to be right with you. And just possibly on that very day, all this tremendous, horrific news comes to Job. And the Hebrew here is so carefully constructed. We can see the patterns, and the patterns reveal that this was designed to go from bad to worse and inflict the maximum amount of pain on Job as possible. 
that while he was yet speaking, and then I alone have escaped to tell you that the Sabaeans came, people who lived in the south, and then the fire of God, possibly lightning, uh, the Chaldeans, those were potentially uh, northeastern nomads at the time. So you've got the south and the northeast, everyone coming against Job. And then this great wind, a whirlwind that somehow whirled upon the house, touched the four corners, and decimated them, and one residence was demolished. In one day, Job was left with nothing. And you know what's so weird is that the scripture is showing us, the account is showing us that it was God who initiated all this. So that's our second point, is admit that God initiated Job's great suffering. Admit that God initiated Job's great suffering. I mean, look back at verse 8 of chapter 1. Verse 8 says, And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? God was pointing out Job here. God set it up. We can see through the account that God said and Satan answered. God was in control. God was initiating. God was orchestrating these things, and Satan was responding. Satan was roaming throughout the earth. God knew exactly what he was doing. We see in 1 Peter 5, 8 what he was doing. It says, be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what the New Testament teaches us. And God, in essence, said, Satan, as you're down there roaring around, roaming about the earth, seeking someone to devour, put your full focus on Job. Look at Job. Don't miss Job. And Satan said, yeah, God, you, you let down that hedge around him and his house and all that he has. You're the one that's protecting him. And God said, okay. God said, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And you know what's even more uh, interesting? Is that even Job himself even Job himself realized that God had initiated this. Let's look at Job 1, 20 through 22. Job 1, 20 through 22, as we see Job's response to this horrific suffering. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job, in an act of grief, normative grief, in the ancient Near East, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he was broken. But it's so interesting. You don't see him cursing the Sabaeans. You don't see him uh, yelling about the Chaldeans. You don't see him mocking the servants who allowed this to happen because he knew that ultimately this was God. 
this was God. You don't see him talking about his own rights and how could God have done this to him. He had been a good man, right? The best man. He knew that God owns everything and God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. We see that principle that Job expressed in the New Testament. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6, 7, the apostle Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Job very humbly saying, I brought nothing in. I deserve nothing. God has been very gracious to give to me. And he as God has every right to take it away. And as verse 22 says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, even though Job knew that God had initiated this, he did not sin by charging God with wrong. It would have been a sin to charge God with wrong. We see throughout the Bible that God, he's God. God is God and nothing ultimately happens apart from him. Uh, think about these uh, three Old Testament passages. Uh, Amos 3.6. Amos 3.6 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? This trumpet goes off, a blast, an enemy is coming. The people are afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless Yahweh has done it? God is the one who orchestrates. Isaiah 3. 45.7, Isaiah 45.7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. And then Lamentations 3.38. Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad Just these three passages reveal that disaster, darkness, calamity, and bad things are under the sovereign control of our God. And you know what? We would not want to live in a universe where God did not have control over these things, where God did not govern these things. We would not want to live in a universe where Disaster and darkness and calamity and bad things were outside of his ultimate control. And as we're thinking about this, uh, our natural response is to think, well, disaster, darkness, calamity, bad things, those things aren't nice. One scholar wisely said, what is right is not always what is nice. And what is nice is not always what is right. What do you mean by that? Well, kids can think it's really nice if you give them candy for every meal. They can think you're the nicest person on the planet. Or they can think it's really nice if you never make them do chores. Chores are hard and they don't feel good. But we don't do that, right? You have a parent who demands self-discipline and hard work and asks them to be content. Which parent is right? The one that asks for the harder things. 
So a child's perspective of what is nice and what is mean is usually naive and immature, and she needs to learn to trust the love of her parents. And so do we, because we have the perfect parent, so we have to do the same. We see this uh, principle revealed to us in the New Testament in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul in the book of Romans, Romans 11, 33 through 35. Romans eleven thirty three through 35, the apostle Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You know what's so interesting about that? Paul is citing Job there. And we're going to come across these passages as we work through the text of Job. We don't know the mind of the Lord. We don't know his ways. We have to learn to trust him the way that Job did. Because God could have changed things for Job. And you know what? In your pain, your deepest pain, God could have changed those things too. It wouldn't be hard for him to change those things. Just imagine for a second that you go home today, and let's just say you go home and you get a text message, and the message says, hey, it's Jesus. Okay, I'm going to come by, and I'm going to stop by your house, and I want to talk to you face-to-face, incarnate, in in skin, I'm going to talk to you face to face. So you get a knock on the door and Jesus comes and he comes and he says, hey, I know your deepest pain. I know the source of your deepest pain and I just want to let you know that I could have changed that. In fact, I can change it right now because I'm God. But you know what? I'll get more glory if I don't. What would you say to him? How would you respond to him? You might think, wow, good for you, Jesus. I mean, it's all about your glory, right? But we got to keep our perspective right. We got to remember that he's our creator. He made us. He has authority over us. And not only is he our creator, he's our savior, He's the one who took on human flesh so that we could be right with him. He's the one who bled and died for our sins. He's the one who gave up everything for us. And you know what he promises as well? He says not only, not only is it for his glory, but it's for our good too. It's for our good in the end. And it's not that we should never seek to right the things that are wrong. We should. But when we learn, when we truly learn to see God's hand in everything, we can be confident that even our deepest, even our most deep pains are here for a good reason and a good purpose. 
if we could talk to Job right now, what would he say? He would say that was hard, but it was all worth it. It was worth every minute. And, you know, we're not in the dark as we're reading all of this. We know what's going on. But remember, Job was in the dark. He had no idea of what was taking place, literally no idea. It's interesting in uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. Verse 20 of chapter 1 where Job responds to this horrific news. It says he fell on the ground and worshipped. Now, there's a, a common pattern in the Old Testament, a common phraseology that's used uh, where you see fell or fell on the ground and wept. Uh, for example, Genesis 33, 4, Esau meets his brother Jacob and they fall and weep. Or Genesis 45, 14, uh, Joseph meets his brother Benjamin for the first time and he falls upon his neck and weeps. Or Genesis 46, 29, Joseph meets his father Jacob, he's reunited with him, and they fall and weep. Or Genesis 51, when Joseph learns that his father has died, he falls and he weeps. 1 Samuel 20, 41, David and Jonathan, these two best friends, they're not going to see each other anymore. They fall and they weep. Or Esther 8, 3, when Esther's advocating for his, her people before the king. It says that she fell on the ground and she wept. So the Hebrew reader would be expecting the same thing here, expecting Job after this huge calamity to fall on the ground and weep. But the text says Job fell and he worshiped. And you know what? God won, God was right. Not only did Job not curse God, but he blessed him instead. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. God was right and Satan was wrong. And the great, the magnificent of faith of Job did not remove his suffering. But instead, that great faith was actually the cause of his suffering. And so we move along with the text in Job chapter 2. Let's read Job 2, 1 through 8. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. 
So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Well, God says here to Satan that you incited me against him to destroy him without reason in verse 3 of chapter 2. And that doesn't mean there was no reason for this. But what it means is there was no reason in Job for him to uh, experience this horrific pain, punishment, so to speak. There was no sinfulness in him. And then Satan says, skin for skin. He's accusing Job again, saying uh, he didn't care about the skin of his animals or even the skin of his own kids. He wants to protect his own skin. Take his body and make him suffer, and he will curse you. He did so well. Will you reward his goodness? You reward his righteousness with even more problem, more suffering. And God says, okay, but spare his life. God needed Job to be alive for his plan to continue. And, you know, it reveals to us that God is sovereign not only in what he allows, but what he restrains as well. And Job was physically afflicted, and it was a severe affliction. And we'll see the degree of that affliction as we uh, explore our second section, but let me uh, give you some of the highlights of that affliction. Job 30:17 says that his bones were aching. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. Job 30:28 reveals that he had acute dermatitis. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. He had peeling skin. Job 30:30 30, 30 says my skin turns black and falls from me. He had erupting pustules on his body. Job 7.5 says, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens then breaks out afresh. He was emaciated. Job 19.20 says, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. He was racked with fever. Job 30.30, 30, My bones burn with heat. He was depressed. Job 7.16, I loathe my life. Uh, this pain caused him to cry. It hurt so bad. Job 16.16, 16, my face is red with weeping. He couldn't sleep at night. He had insomnia. Job 7.4, but the night is long and I am full of tossing till the dawn. He experienced nightmares Job 7.14, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. He had putrid breath. Job 19.17, my breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. His vision was failing. Job 16.16, 16, on my eyelids is deep darkness, and his teeth were rotting out. Job 19.20, I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Verse 7 of chapter 2 said that Satan inflicted him with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now we'll say sores from top to bottom, or we'll even say sores from head to toe, but the language is heightened here 
not just head to toe, but from the sole, the bottom of his foot, to the crown, the very tip of his head, all of Job's entire being was racked with physical pain. And then verse 8 of chapter 2 says, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. He was in the ashes. He was in the town garbage dump where they would burn the garbage and there were ashes. And he took pieces of broken pottery and would scrape the pus off his skin. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, adds that Job used that pottery to scrape away the pus. He was in a trash dump. He felt at this point like human trash, like there was nothing left for him. He could have gone home, right? But he sat there in the trash dump because Job was really in the dark. He had no idea why any of this was happening to him, and neither did anyone else. Look at what his wife said, Job 2, 9 and 10. Look at what his wife said and then his response. Job 2, 9 and 10, that his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't sin because Job loved God. And that's our third and final point here, is we need to love God above all else. We need to love God above all else. Now, his wife, she walked away. Now, either she had lost her faith, or some say she so desperately wanted to see Job out of his misery that she said, just get this over with. Curse God and die. You know, if you're around somebody who's in a lot of pain, maybe at the end of their life, sometimes you say, well, at least they're out of their suffering. It might have been so hard for her to see her husband in this extreme suffering. She was saying, Job, listen, there's no way to fix this. We're ruined. Everything's gone. You're broken. It is done. And it's interesting because Job, he doesn't even call her wicked. He doesn't rebuke her for her lack of encouragement. He just says, you know, you're talking like a foolish person right now. He was kind to her, even though she was discouraging him. And text goes on in Job 2, 11 through 13. Uh, Job 2, 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days 
and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. His three friends came from other places, foreign places. The news of the great Job's tragedy had spread. And his friends came, and when they saw him, they were both horrified and they were speechless. There was nothing they could say. These were good guys. Like Job, they cared about righteousness, and they even go on, we'll see, to speak truth. But the problem is they got the truth wrong with respect to Job and the situation of Job, the context of Job. Uh, they were adhering to what was common in the ancient Near East. It's called the law of divine retribution or the divine retribution principle. And that says, if you do bad things, God will punish you. And if you do good things, God will bless you. And that's what everybody thought. Bad things, God punishes. Good things, God will bless. So what do you think they thought about Job? He must have done something really bad. He must have real darkness in his heart. Job had lost even his reputation. Yeah, they didn't think that God would let bad things happen to a righteous man without reason. That just wouldn't be fair, would it? Well, we know from our perspective that Job's incredible pain vindicated God in light of Satan's accusations. But Job didn't know that. His wife didn't know that. His friends didn't know that. No one on earth knew that. Job didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the book of Romans. He didn't have Romans 8.28 that says we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Job didn't have that. But you know what? We do. We have that. We know that. Job was able to trust God when everything went wrong, when he lost everything, when he was in total darkness because he loved God above all else. Job loved God. Remember Satan's accusation there in chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear God for no reason, or is there a reason behind this? Well, the answer is, yeah, God, Job clearly fears God for no reason. But then again, the answer is no. There is a reason that Job fears or serves or loves God. There is something that he gets out of it. You know what he got? He got God. Job got God. He had a relationship with God. And that's why he did this. What about us? When pain strikes, when pain hits, do we shriek, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you withholding stuff from my life? Why are you taking stuff away from me? 
Why don't I have the relationships I want? Why don't I have the reputation or the recognition that I want? God says, you know, you might not have that, but you know what you do have? You have me and a relationship with me. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is enough. God was enough for Job. God needs to be enough for me. And God needs to be enough for you too. Because God is enough. Well, we have a lot to look forward to as we continue through this ancient and fascinating book. Our next session is going to be on July 5th and 6th. And it's providential that our daily Bible reading with Compass Bible Church is going to cover the text of Job between now and then. So your group leader is going to give you a cute little calendar that we made that uh, corresponds with the church's daily Bible reading, and you'll be prompted to read through the text of Job before you come next time. So you'll be all ready for the next session. And you know what? When you come next time, we're going to give you two super neat stickers, uh, one of our key verse this time, uh, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 121 on a sticker. And we're going to give you a sticker with the key verse from the next session. And then if you come to the third session in August, we're going to give you a third and final sticker. And if you show up to all three, we're going to give you an exclusive Compass Women water bottle to put those stickers on. So I guess you could say we're bribing you. Because we really want you to come and stick with us this summer and make it through this, again, fascinating and incredible book. Let me close in prayer. God, please, I pray that you would help us all to be like Job, as he is an example, a model for us. Lord, may we be characterized by those same attributes. May we be blameless and upright and fear you and turn from all evil. And if there are any women here who know right now, who know in their innermost being, who know that before heaven there is something they need to turn from or something they need to do to be that person, God, give her the courage and the strength to make that right today. And God, help us to remember that you are in control of everything that happens, the good and the bad. And I pray that that would not be a source of angst or anguish for us, but that it would be a great comfort that we would know that every single pain that you have providentially allowed us to incur, every single tear, all the suffering is for a good purpose. It is not without reason. And God, above all, I pray that you would help us all to love you above all else. That we could be like Job and say, even if everything is stripped away, we have Jesus. God, may we say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. 
My flesh and heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever because I have a relationship with you. And that relationship was provided by the blood and the death and the payment of our Lord Jesus. And so we close by praying in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups. <laughs>